Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. So far in this study, we have been going psalm by psalm in chronological order. But a little challenge is before us tonight because the next psalm we'll be looking at is Psalm 17. But then Psalm 18 is a very long psalm that really deserves an evening on its own. And so tonight we're going to look at Psalm 17 and Psalm 19. Psalm 17 is just a prayer, a good prayer, but what we have to be careful about when we're reading Old Testament passages, when we're reading the Psalms here, we have to be careful that we don't become anachronistic and read New Testament principles and revelations into these Old Testament passages. The reason I bring that up is that at the beginning of this prayer, David is going to argue for his integrity, very much the same way that Job argued for his own integrity. When David argues his integrity, that's going to rub up against what we know as new covenant theology, salvation by grace through faith without the works of the law. But we have to remember that King David was in fact under the law of God. He was responsible to keep the law of God. He was responsible to promote and rule by the law of God. And so his plea to God is going to be, hear me because I've been doing the things that you've laid out in front of me. I've I've been walking in integrity here. Now we know from several other passages here in the Psalms that David recognizes that his righteousness, his eternal righteousness before God, comes from God. But even though he knows that, nevertheless, he is still under the obligation to keep the law of God. That is his relationship with God. It is via the law of God. And so at the beginning of this prayer, he's going to pray on the basis of You've tried me, you visited me in the night, you tested me, and you didn't find anything against me. Well, of course, this is David, who we know was responsible for the death of Uriah the Hittite. And this is David, who we know had his affair with Bathsheba, resulting in God killing their firstborn. We know that David is guilty. And yet, David is saying here, in praying to God, in begging God to protect him and deliver him, David is going to say, but I walk in integrity. I walk in the uprightness of my heart. And what we cannot do is take the later revelation that God gives us in his series of progressive revelatory information. David doesn't know the New Testament. He doesn't know Pauline theology. He doesn't know salvation by grace through faith without the works of the law hadn't been written yet. So even though you see foreshadows of that 
David is still going to God on the basis of the foundation of his relationship with God, which is the law. And so this prayer begins, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. He's arguing that he's not a hypocrite, that he is honest in the things that he says. And so he can say confidently in verse 2, let my judgment come forth from thy presence. Because he feels confident that God is going to judge him as an upright man. So let my judgment come forth from thy presence and let thine eyes look with equity, with fairness. Thou hast tried my heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tested me and found nothing. And I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. So the same way that he said that he does not have deceitful lips, he's now arguing that he is honest in the things that he says, in the way that he's judging as king, he has purposed within himself, which we, if anybody today said, I've purposed within myself to be upright and never say anything wrong, we would rightly say, gee, that sounds awfully legalistic. And yet that would be to impose that anachronistic idea on David. David, before the law of God, is arguing that he's a law keeper. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of thy lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. So David has just said, this is our clue, by the words of your lips. In other words, God, you have already laid down the law. You have already laid down your precepts. Now that I am walking in those precepts, I have kept myself from the paths from the way, from the activity of the violent, because you said so. Verse 5, my steps have held fast to thy paths. My feet have not slipped. I have called upon thee, for thou wilt answer me, O God. Incline thine ear to me and hear my speech. Okay, that was all his invocation. That was the beginning of his prayer. Hear me, God, on the basis of the fact that I am chasing hard after your law and I'm working hard to walk in uprightness and to use my mouth correctly and my feet have not slipped. And therefore, since he's confident in his own righteousness before God, since he is arguing for his own integrity, he can then say, on that basis, I have called thee. For thou wilt answer me, O Lord, incline thine ear to me, hear my speech. Wondrously show thy loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at thy right hand, from those who rise up against them. So now we know what David's prayer is about. He is praying to God to deliver him from his enemies yet again. And saying that God is a savior, is a protector, is a stronghold to those people who take shelter, who take refuge in the right hand of God, in the strength, in the might of God. David, in trusting in God's power, God's ability, is expecting God then to protect him from his enemies, from those who rise up against him. 
Keep me as the apple of your eye. That phrase has become so common these days, the apple of your eye. The Hebrew word actually means pupil, but one of the ways that the pupil of your eye was described was as the apple. I have a picture I took once of a horse. Horses have big eyes. When I got the picture home and I looked at it, I could see my reflection in the pupil of the horse. Well, that's what David is saying here, that we are reflected in the eye of God. He keeps us in his eye so completely that we are like the apple, the very core, the very pupil of his eye. Keep me as the apple of your eye and hide me in the shadow of your wings. Keep me from the wicked who despoil me and my deadly enemies who surround me. They have both closed their unfeeling heart. The word heart is added by the translators because it's implied in what David is writing. But they have closed off all emotion or compassion toward him resulting in, with their mouths, they speak proudly. Those two things seem to always go together. The uncaring, the unfeeling, the unsympathetic will always let you know about it with their mouths, and they will always speak to you in a proud, unsympathetic way. So here is David charging his enemies as not caring about him, not caring about his life, not caring about his nation, But they also boast these things. With their mouths, they speak proudly. And they have now surrounded us in our steps. Everywhere we walk, they're around us. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. That is their intention, to wipe us out completely, to take us down to the ground. Verse 12 says, he, referring to the enemy, he's like a lion who is eager to tear The enemies are looking to devour David and his people as a young lion lurking in hiding places. So what's the solution to all that? David began with, hear my prayer. And then he spelled out what the problem was, deliver me from my enemies. And now in verse 13, arise, O Lord. We've seen that phrase several times here in the Psalms. And I have said to you that is that it is David's way of saying, stir yourself up, pick yourself up, arise, O Lord. Confront my enemies, confront him, and bring him low, and deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men with thy hand, O Lord. In other words, deliver me from the hand of men, And use your hand, your strength, your might, your sword to accomplish that, O Yahweh. Deliver me from the men of the world whose portion is this life. Now David is going to contrast and compare those who belong to God with the enemies of God, with the enemies of Israel. And he's going to say their lot in this world is right here, right now. Whatever they get right here, right now, that's as good as it's going to get for them. Then he's going to compare it and say, but those who follow after God are going to stand and see the face of God in righteousness. So here's how he describes it. Verse 14, deliver me from men with thy hand, O Lord, from the men of this world whose portion is in this life and whose belly 
thou dost fill with thy treasure. In other words, the fact that they eat, the fact that they have clothes, the fact that the rain comes, that is all the treasure of God coming on them. And they don't recognize it. They don't give thanks to God for it. But that's all they're going to get. Whose belly thou dost fill with thy treasure. And they are satisfied with children. They have large families. You have filled them with children. And then they leave that abundance to their babies. In other words, all they get in this life is all they get, and they don't take anything with them. And when they die, they have to face the judge of the universe and all the stuff, all the treasures that they found so valuable in this lifetime. They leave all that behind for their children and their children's children. They take none of it with them. Verse 15, but as for me, I shall behold thy face in righteousness. So David sees something more than just this terrestrial life, more than just this fleshly life. He looks out in the future and says, when I die, I'm actually going to look at God in the face. I'm going to be accepted in righteousness. I shall behold thy face in righteousness, and I will be satisfied with thy likeness when I awake. I love the phrase, when I awake, because when the evil world dies, they just gave up the best life they ever get for the Joel Osteen fans in the room. Their best life truly is now, because when they die, they're going to face the judgment of God. But David, arguing that he has walked in his righteousness, recognizes that when he stands before God, that's when he's going to achieve actual real righteousness. And he's going to behold the face of God. What a beautiful image. And be satisfied by seeing the image of God, the likeness of God. That's going to be everything he needs, everything he wants it's not the treasures of this world. It's not the stuff that you can accumulate in this terrestrial life that is the goal of life, according to David. The goal is to be able to stand before God, accepted and eternally loved, be able to look on the face of God, and you're going to be satisfied with that. That's going to be enough. That's going to be a great enough accomplishment in this lifetime if you can look at God and he does not send you away from his presence. And therefore, David says, I'm going to die, but I'm going to be awake again. And when I awake, I'm going to be accepted by God. So there's the contrast in that prayer. The contrast is, God, I'm walking in my righteousness. By the end of the prayer, we know why he's working so hard to walk in his righteousness. Not only because God has dictated it, not only because God has laid down his law, but because David sees it as worth it that by walking in his righteousness and not being like the world, then he's going to actually see God face to face. And after he dies, he'll see the image, the likeness of God when he wakes up again. I think that's a pretty good prayer. And that will take us to Psalm 19. Psalm 18 is 50 verses long, so you can see why it will take a whole evening to get through it. Psalm 19 is going to talk about the heavens and the creation and the universe itself. And David is going to lay out a concept 
that I think is the foundation of Paul's writing. In fact, if you would, Steve, look up Romans 1, and you're going to read verses 18 to 20, because Paul makes the same argument that David is making here. Paul didn't just come up with this theological idea. It was something that David had already established. David is going to argue that the heavens, the universe, the skies, the planets, the stars, sun and moon in their course, the fact that the sun comes up every day, goes down every night, the fact that you can actually track them, that you know where that star is going to be, and sure enough, it's there. He's going to say, all of that is speaking to you. And if you're paying attention and you're listening, it is all declaring the existence of God. And you can see why Paul would then pick that up and say, yeah, that that the creation itself (coughs) is continually declaring the existence of God and the glory of God. And yet human beings can walk outside, look up at the night sky and not see God in it for some reason and just think that this just sort of happened. I just read an article this week where scientists are saying because of the Hubble telescope now that they are able to track the speed with which the universe is moving outward and it's moving faster than the Big Bang allows it to move. Gee, it kind of sounds like God, doesn't it? And so the, the article, which was a very scientific article, and talking about how it had confused scientists, because scientists are easily confused when God gets involved. And as I was reading it, I just kept thinking, you're missing the obvious. They're saying now they have to rewrite their equations or rewrite their expectations. They have to rewrite how they believe the universe is expanding and at what speed. But they're missing the fact that it doesn't fit their model because God does not fit their model. Well, here's how David puts it. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. That's what they're doing. That's why they're up there. There are universes out there that none of us have ever seen. We, even with our telescopes, we we haven't seen them. We don't know. All we do is say, well, there's billions of them, but we haven't even named them all. We haven't found them all. We haven't seen them all. God has. They're all there for his good pleasure, and they're all there as evidence of his existence, and they are all telling us about the glory of God. And their expanse, that is the word for everything you can see. When you go out and you look up, that is the expanse of the heavens. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. That's about as obvious a statement as you can make. When you walk outside, you look up the sky, you see the stars, see everything that is in the expanse above you, that is a declaration by God of his existence, and it is constantly declaring the work of God's hands. And then David explains in more detail, he says, day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. If you're paying attention to the fact that day comes every day, you know, today's a day. We're having a day right now, this day. Tomorrow there's another day. Yesterday there was a day. We keep having days. David argues 
that the reason we keep having days is because the sun and the moon in their orbit keep moving in a line that is predetermined for them. And the fact that that keeps happening proves a creator because that couldn't just happen by chance. It shows that there is actually order to the universe and it is speaking loudly to the fact that the creator has done this. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And then David says, but there is no verbal speech nor are there any words. Their voice is not heard. And yet, verse 4, the NASB says, their line has gone out through all the earth. The same Hebrew word could be translated the sound. I prefer that translation. So David, in a very poetic way, says, even though the day doesn't have lips and a tongue and is actually speaking so there's no actual verbal speech nor are there any words and there is no vocal cord so their voice isn't heard and yet the sound of them has gone out through the whole earth and their utterances have gone to the end of the earth and in them in the heavens he has placed a tent a tabernacle for the sun Now, in a moment, he's going to describe that tabernacle for the sun. But before we get too far past Romans 1, 18 to 20, Steve, why don't you read that for us and listen to the similarity of Paul's words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So God is going to be able to judge men who will not have an excuse by the very fact that the creation itself, the universe itself, the expanse itself, constantly speaks of the existence of God. And they have ignored it in their hard-heartedness, in their rebellion, in their sin. They're not listening. And so whether it's David in the Old Testament, whether it's Paul in the New Testament, the argument consistently is the creation proves God. I have been asked through the years by atheists and cynics, they say, prove God. Okay, you believe God? Okay, prove it. The Bible says God has already proved himself. The fact that the creation exists proves it. The fact that the expanse and the heavens and the stars and the universes and the galaxies exist already proves God. Therefore, when it's time for judgment, therefore, when they stand before God and he judges them, they can't say, I didn't know. He's going to say, were you alive on my earth? Did you ever look up? Well, then you're guilty. Their sound has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances have gone to the end of the world. And in them, he has placed a tent for the sun. Now, the very fact that he makes reference to the sun there means that the them of the sentence is in the expanse, in the galaxies, in the handiwork of God that is 
day to night and sun and moon and planets, all of that that is speaking constantly to us also includes a place where God has designated a tabernacle or a tent for the sun. And then he describes the sun like this. Now, by the way, you have to remember that 3,000 years ago in the Middle East, if you didn't get sunshine and rain, you didn't get food. And job one every day was go find food. So you were very, very dependent on knowing the course of nature, knowing how the sun moved, knowing what the seasons were for planting and for harvesting. So the sun was very much a part of their everyday culture in order to keep eating. And so David describes the sun and says he's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. He rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Micah, when they got you all tucked up, because I've seen pictures, and uh, April was waiting at the altar. No, you were waiting at the altar. The door opens, and she comes walking down that aisle toward you. Pretty happy day? Feeling pretty good at that moment? Yeah. yeah she's close enough to slap you, so you have to be careful with your answer. But... And she'll do it. And she'll do it, yeah. Okay, well, that's what David is describing here. He's saying, like a bridegroom, when he comes out of his chamber... He's newly married. What a happy guy. And he's saying, that's what the sun's like when it comes up every day. And then he describes the sun as rejoicing, like a strong man. And the sun goes and runs its course. From our perspective on the planet, it looks to us like the sun moves across the sky. And you can plot that movement. The way it moved today, it's going to move tomorrow. And as the seasons change, you're going to see it set lower in the sky and higher in the sky. And you can count on it doing its same routine every single day. And so David anthropomorphizes the sun and says that it's like a strong man. It's like a bridegroom. It's rejoicing. It's running its course. Verse 6, it's rising is from one end of the heavens. And then its circular route, its circuit, is to the other end of the heavens, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. When the sun is up and it's a hot day, especially 3,000 years ago with no air conditioning, there was nowhere to go to get away from the heat. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. When the sun is in the sky, you know it, you feel it, it's affecting you, it's feeding you, you're very, very conscious of it. David's argument is, God... That's God. That's all God's doing. And the fact that you can see it every day, you don't control it. You didn't cause it. You didn't plan it. But it works every single day. Why? God. God did it. And so it is a testimony. It is a voice speaking from the heavens, letting you know the glory of God. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Tom, if you would, look up Romans 7. You're going to read verses 12 to 16 for us. A moment ago, we were reading the prayer of David, and I was emphasizing to you 
that David is under the law of God. Therefore, David was appealing to God on the basis of his law keeping, which he was obligated to do. Now David is going to extol the virtues of God's law. And by the way, Paul is going to say the same thing, that the law is good, the law is right, the law is holy. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. Sometimes, because we hear now that we're saved by grace through faith, sometimes you'll hear preachers denigrate the law of God as if there was a weakness in the law that caused God to replace it with salvation by grace through faith. The weakness, according to Paul, was us. There was nothing wrong with the law. The law is good and righteous and holy. It's the standard of God. You can't fault it. You can't blame it. Problem is, you can't do it. Why? Because you're you. Verse 7 says, The law of Yahweh is perfect. That word can also be translated blameless. You can't blame the law of God. The blame lays with you, as I keep saying. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. And the testimony of Yahweh is sure. It's secure. It's rigorous. You can stand on it. And it makes even simple people wise. Anybody who comes before the law of God, reads the law of God, understands the law of God, is going to be made wise. Not only are they going to have information that they're collecting, but they're also going to know what to do with that information, which is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. They're going to be made wise by the testimony of God. You can count on it. You can stand on it. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure. That means there's no dirt in it. There's no sin in it. There's there's no chicanery to it. It is absolutely pure. And it enlightens your eyes. That phrase just means it gives you greater understanding. The judgments of the Lord are true. And they are righteous altogether. Completely. There's no point at which you can blame the law or say that the law is failing in some way. So now Tom's going to read for us Romans 7, and he's going to read verses 12 to 16. Listen to Paul say the same thing. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, that through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, soul under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So Paul and David are agreeing that the law of God is perfect and righteous and pure and holy. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. Interestingly, Paul is saying it from a perspective of knowing salvation by grace through faith. David is saying it from the perspective of being somebody who's under the law and obligated to keep the law. 
who even prayed on the basis of keeping the law. And yet they both agree that the law of God is perfect and right and holy, and there's nothing wrong with it. So from either perspective, the end result is in verse 9, here of Psalm 19, which is the fear of the Lord is clean or pure, enduring forever. Where are you going to get that word fear? That doesn't mean slavish fear. It means reverence toward God. Where are you going to learn genuine reverential fear to God? Well, you're going to learn that by standing before the law of God and recognizing, like Paul, that you can't do it. That's why Paul said, I didn't know I was coveting until the law said, don't covet. Sin revived in me and I died. And so that's the purpose of the law, but the law itself, you can't say anything against it. You can't blame the law. But if you stand before the law of God and you understand the law of God are right and you recognize that it can do nothing but condemn you because you cannot stand up to the law, the end result is going to be a genuine fear of Yahweh, a genuine sense that you need to get down on your face in front of that God because he is righteous and pure and holy and a judge. And he's going to judge, as David said, with equity. <laughs> so he's not going to care who you are or what you did in this lifetime. It's going to come down to, are you or are you not a God-fearer? And the fear of the Lord is pure, and it endures forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true. That's reassuring to those of us who are counting on God to be gracious to us, those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore we believe that we're going to stand before God and be accepted and ever loved, we like the idea that those judgments from God that are going to work in our favor, we like the idea that they're true. <laughs> like, okay, God accepts me. True, I agree. But this is also a frightening statement because the judgments of God against all his enemies, against the worldly people that David was praying about earlier, God's judgments against them, they're going to have no way of arguing against it. They're going to have no legitimate response to it because his judgments are true. And what they got in this world is all they're going to get from God. And he's even going to hold them accountable for the fact that he fed them and he filled their bellies and he gave them children and he gave them the whole universe that's screaming every day the existence of God. And they ignored it in their sinful, depraved, rebellious hearts. You can see why God's very true judgments are going to go very poorly for them. The judgments of the Lord are true and they are righteous altogether. Because God is holy and because God is righteous, whatever God does is by definition holy and righteous. Sometimes God acts in ways that we don't agree with, we, we don't like. Why this? Why is this happening, God? Why are you doing it this way? Always keep the God perspective. Always think of it from the biblical perspective and recognize that whatever God does, because he's holy and righteous, is therefore a holy and a righteous act. You cannot blame God 
You cannot discount God. You cannot say that God made a mistake or that you could come up with a better plan than God could come up with. Proper fear, proper reverence of God gets down in front of God. Get on your knees, get on your face, recognize that he's the only righteous true one and that you're just simply not. He's the one who can see the end from the beginning. He knows what he's doing right now because he knows what the outcome is going to be a million years from now. Therefore, his judgments are true and righteous altogether. Whatever they are, they are altogether righteous. Therefore, the judgments of God are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. And they are sweeter also than honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. It kind of goes along with what we were talking about this past Sunday. Moreover, by them, by the words of God, moreover, by them, thy servant is warned. That law of God, that perfect law of God, that blameless law of God, by those, we who pay attention to God and his law, we're warned. I didn't come to Jesus just uh, randomly one day. I didn't wake up and just go, hey, I think I'll go to Jesus. What I came to realize was my sinful estate, because he very kindly, very graciously, by his spirit, showed me how depraved I was, and then showed me the standards I was not living up to, showed me his law, showed me that I needed to be condemned, that I was rightly judged. And what did I do? I ran to him. Because he's the only salvation, the only cure, the only balm for the sickness that pervades us. By the law, we're warned. But in keeping the law, there's great reward. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Quick, who can discern? Really? From God's perspective, God who's holy, righteous, God who knows everything you think, everything you do, every missed opportunity. From your perspective, can you possibly know everything about you that God knows? No. No, you can't. Because human beings just have this natural tendency to justify ourselves and say, well, I probably wasn't that bad. And then we compare ourselves to somebody who's worse. I'm not Pol Pot. I mean, come on. So our natural tendency is to try to cover up our sins, just like Adam and Eve putting together their fig leaves, rather than recognizing their error. Who, David asks, who can discern their own errors? And so we ask God, acquit me, forgive me, judge me righteously, acquit me of my hidden faults. Because he recognizes that he can't possibly know everything that's wrong with him. And neither can you. You can't know every way and every time that you have ever offended a righteous, holy, eternal God. Therefore, David prays to God, also forgive me for the fact that I sin against you when I don't even know it. The opposite of sinning and not knowing it is knowing it and doing it anyway. 
That's the next thing David talks about. Also, keep thy servant back from presumptuous sins. There's a lot of that that goes on in the circles that believe in salvation by grace through faith. We do believe that Jesus is a perfect Savior. We do believe that our righteousness is all wrapped up in him and the blood atonement that he has poured out. And so we do believe that we were chosen before the foundation of the world and our names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so we do believe that we are secure. But don't let that security, as Paul says, then cause you to go and sin. Should we sin all the more that grace may abound? Paul's answer is, God forbid. That's the very essence of what presumptuous sin is, is to say, well, I'm forgiven and I know this is Not good, but I'm going to do it anyway. And by the way, Paul says, if you think it's sin, it becomes sin for you. And then if you do it anyway, you've offended your own conscience. And God knows that. God sees that. And that is presumption against a holy, righteous God. So God, forgive me for the sins I don't know about, and also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins and let them not rule over me. And then, if God's the one who protects you, if God's the one that acquits you, if God's the one that forgives you, then I shall be blameless and I shall be acquitted of my great transgression. Okay, now take a moment and compare what you just read from David here. His recognition of his presumption and his hidden sins and how great his transgressing against God is on a continual basis. Now contrast that with what you saw at the beginning of his prayer in Psalm 17. Because yes, in the prayer, David was arguing for his own upstandingness before God. He was arguing for his own integrity before God because he was walking before the law as best he could and using that as the basis of his prayer. But really, when it comes down to it, David also knows that as hard as he's trying to follow that very pure, righteous, holy law, that it's just impossible. And so here he is at the end of Psalm 19 begging God to forgive him and acquit him of how great his transgressions actually are. David actually has a very balanced theology, especially considering that he was obligated to walk before the law, but the more he walked before the law, the more he recognized his own inability to do it, his own dependence on God. He's warned by the law, and therefore he can say, God, acquit me and forgive me, for the things I don't know I'm doing, for the things I do know I'm doing, and for the greatness of my transgressions against you. Verse 14. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. So David recognizes who his redeemer is. He knows who the foundation stone is. He knows where to hide, to run for shelter under the wings of God. 
He knows his transgressions. And yet his prayer to God is knowing everything you know about me. Knowing how hard I'm trying to walk by your law and also recognizing my constant failures before you. He prays the same thing we would all pray. Just let the words of my mouth and the things that I think about, the meditations of my heart, just let them be acceptable to you. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What an important word. The one who is going to redeem me from my transgressions, the one who is going to redeem me from my sin, who on that day of judgment, when you're judging truthfully and rightfully, is going to accept me, not on the basis of me, but on the basis of you. It's a really good request. And I think I'm done. Any comments? When you have a past like David does, and he's quite aware of it, you know that grace is your only hope. It has to be. It has to be grace. The more you know about you and the more you know about the law, how can anybody stand before a righteous holy God and a righteous holy law and be accepted? It has to be because God did something for you that you couldn't do yourself. It has to be grace. And that is the grounds of acceptance all the way through the Bible. Ever since Adam and Eve fell, the only way anybody has been accepted is by grace. So grace, 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 yes. grace, grace. Anything else? David recognized and said that my sin was ever before me. Mm -hmm. And that he was born in iniquity and conceived in sin. So he recognized his depravity. Yeah, he's very realistic about his own sinfulness and his own depravity. Think about how internally conflicted you'd have to be to have the knowledge that David has, the wisdom that he is a sinful person and that his transgressions against God are huge and constant. And at the same time, you've got the law of God in front of you. That's the standard that you have to live your life by. Think of just how tormenting that had to be. I know when I was a kid growing up in the Lutheran church, when we had the law pounded down on us every Sunday, what I discovered was I can't do it. I'm no good, and therefore I'm going to be judged by God. And that was torment. I was so glad the day that I heard salvation by grace through faith, the first time that I heard about the grace of God being the cause and the basis of our justification, that was just so freeing. That was so wonderful. Sometimes I read these psalms from David and I just think, I can see why you're such a tormented soul. What a difficult thing you're living through. Your knowledge of your own failure before God and the perfect, pure, righteous, holy standard that you're working so hard to live by. And just like with Martin Luther, it drove David to the point where he says, it's you, God. It has to be you. It has to be you. There's no other way this works. I can't do it. I know what the standard is. I know my sin, but I know I love you. And you, you have to save me. You have to redeem me. You're the only way that I'm going to be able to see your face. It can't be anything in me. And that's what the law is meant to do. It's meant to drive you to the despair of recognizing there's nowhere else to go. 
You, you have to go to God and plead mercy. It's one of the reasons I love the Psalms is how frequently you see David do exactly that. Yeah, because he says, my rock and my redeemer. I mean, he recognizes that he needs a redeemer that he can't. Yeah, where else are you going to go? Himself, yeah. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.